listeners to another episode of the David Crit Projects podcast. Today we are at Stephen Hobbs's studio here in Johannesburg. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Elise. <laughs> nice to have you here. You began working with David Crit Projects back in 2010. Your debut exhibition with us was Fool's Gold, and then from there you've had about four solo exhibitions with us in the Johannesburg spaces and in the Cape Town spaces, which has been really quite exciting. Before we kind of dive in and explaining your practice, just to summarize it, use three words to describe your practice. Multimodal, urban, paranoid. You you started working as a very conceptual artist. The first work of art you ever sold was a block of ice. And now your work is strongly influenced by architecture, urban design and war aesthetics. Where did your journey begin? Have you starting off as a conceptual artist? What type of your work were you making or rather non-work were you mm. making? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I still think I'm a conceptual artist in the sense that literally the conceptuality of the work is always important for me, the ideas and talking about the ideas and so forth. I think in the early days, the um, minimalism of the work uh, the way that it was uh, responsive to environment or architecture was a was an uh, um, a kind of organic thing. Mm. I was attuned to architectural space or being within a building, and so in the, in the very early days, that was a very exciting way to think about installation and making. Is mm. that the the site you were in was the thing that made the work, and vice versa. So the block of ice was twofold. One, it was produced during my fourth year uh, at Wits University. It was in a basement studio, which I occupied for over a year with five other um, uh, fourth year students. And <clears throat> in some ways, it was a joke about the exams. The lecturers would always arrive late. You, you panic the night before to get your ex exhibition up and running. Mm -hmm. And then they rock up late for your exam where you're going to sit and defend your work. So I wanted to make a work that would be gone by the time they got there to show off them being late <laughs> that was the <laughs> that was the intention was to deceive my 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 professors but so it got asking like where's the art it was like it was here but you're late so you missed out on my art <laughs> correct but what it really unfolded was a way of thinking about space a way of thinking about materiality and a way of thinking about body in space, the, the, the studio environment and so on, quite literally. So it's kind of interesting that you've got to cast it, mount it on a steel plate as was the case with these very precarious fragile legs and then it melts and then it evaporates. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it's kind of like a, a deconstruction of the alchemy of art making, mm -hmm. you know, a reverse process. Uh, and, and the um, collector Pierre Lombard who was very much on the doing the rounds in those days as he still is of emerging young mm -hmm. artists that really appealed to his kind of aesthetic as a collector which was very much about rust and decay and collapse and degeneration and some and as I understand it he still makes a block and mounts it on a steel stand to this day as part of his collection which is a very peculiar homage to something that was intend, mm -hmm. intended to self-erase. You mentioned that even when you were studying you were so sensitive to kind of looking at site looking at architecture so the aesthetics that you're working with now with the architecture and the urban design 
did it just kind of the interest grow stronger? I think the, I think you used the word sensitivity. In the beginning, it wasn't like a predetermined intellectual project as such. It was more like any art making process, I think, when you're really on fire, you're employing all your senses and a whole set of other kind of forces that you're tapping into at some intuitive psychic level or something. And so the pleasure of seeing, the, pr the, pleasure, of, the pleasure of feeling in space with one's various senses, organs, the skin, all that kind of stuff, for me was the, the, it was a very visceral way of entering into um, conditions, whether it's between people or people in space and so forth. So as soon as I graduated from art school, the first thing, the first job I got was at the Market Theatre Gallery, which was in Newtown, and is, you know, you go through the CBD to get to work. So, and I'd visit artists all the time in townships and in the city centre, and in those days, like Joburg was really not a happy place mm -hmm. to visit. And it was that interaction with artists, the interaction with the city through being a curator or artist curator that got me into this very heightened sense of the power of the, the apartheid modernist city on mm. bodies, obviously the black body, but also on a white body with far more privilege, but really to become very attuned to where the edge conditions of mm -hmm. crisis, of panic, of anxiety, peripheral vision, line of sight in a way you one unconsciously maps the urban space like Johannesburg as if you were a soldier in a no-man's land looking consciously mindful of a notion of enemy or threat and so you navigate and physically adapt by a kind of um, mental mental emotional and physical dexterity mm. and that's something you have to be able to have as a logic and as a sensibility in places that places that are defined by a kind of conflict yeah and I think it's quite interesting though because I mean your studio is based in the heart of Johannesburg's CBD so I can kind of see where you studied at WITS here in the center of Johannesburg your first job the center of Johannesburg and it really I can see kind of how the city is really influencing you responding to the city. And this kind of leads me into my next question, was you're often referred to as a public artist. Um, a lot of the work that you do functions within the, the public realm. And has this something that's always been a part of your practice since the fact that your work is often in relation to the city? So part of, so to backtrack and just say something at the front end of your question, mm -hmm. based on the previous question, uh, another thing about Johannesburg is that it, it, it has in it, like many modernist cities, the history of so-called Georgian, Edwardian, Deco, um, modernist, postmodernist, brutalist. It's got like the 20th century um, catalogue of mm. buildings that effectively were imported from Europe and America and so forth. So Johannesburg is a kind of exhibition platform for great architecture and the apartheid government and the British knew how to build buildings. These are amazing buildings. So there is a passion for the city as an exhibition space in and of its own right. It is a beautiful, it's a, maybe not a beautiful thing, but it's a wonderful thing to drive and point out, get out, look at buildings, look at the craftsmanship, look at their integration of art, look at how they speak to the city, how they are citizens in their own right. There's a whole kind of vocabulary of of sort of 
inspiration to draw from buildings as objects in space as form in their own right and then obviously as a kind of social mm. factory of contradiction and madness and and complexity as they have survived one order era colonial system new post-colonial systems and so forth so buildings stand witness to and adapt and change so in some ways if cities are in some ways emblematic of the sort of human particularly male dominant western idea of progress and i built into them planning or otherwise is a kind of sell-by date a moment of dysfunctionality where the building should be destroyed it Mm. has passed its relevance and must go and be replaced but we don't do that in cities, we are too sentimental. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes things stay longer than they should be. And that's a kind of reflection on life. It's Mm -hmm. kind of cities on life on life's terms should have built-in redundancies. And technically Mm -hmm. they do in master planning terms. There are forecasts, 20, 30, Mm -hmm. 40, 50 years, and what stays and what goes and what is adapted and what is Mm -hmm. crumbled and what's its use value. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's a very, very rich territory when you've, once you've acquired a certain amount of years, mm. and I'm still obviously a very young person, <laughs> but you know I've got a good 25 years under yes. my belt of experiencing Johannesburg and, and more of Johannesburg in its heyday mm. when I was a teenager to its collapsedness mm. and now its regeneratedness. And so now to your question, which I think I remember. <laughs> so public the, art. Correct. The, 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 it's far more exciting in a city like Johannesburg or in a continent like Africa to engage with art as a practice somewhere between the street and the front, maybe entrance of a building. Museums are very useful tools for teaching us about the past and the recent past, but they often can't be responsive enough to the the very kind of visceral immediacy of change in cities undergoing extreme change, political, social, physical, all that kind of stuff. So I felt more comfortable in the public realm with a camera or a video camera capturing, documenting. That was really how it was in the 90s and early 2000s. And the business of being referred to as a public artist is in some ways a a misnomer, I think, because that's and aligning me with my practice through the Trinity Session, which is uh, a collective we started 17 years ago, and specializes in the conversation with cities about the role that art and culture can play in redefining the look and feel of the city. So a lot of the public art out in the city has not been made by me or Mm -hmm. Marcus, uh, the co-director of the Trinity Session with me, but, but more through a process of engaging policy, making a contribution to the greater discourse around public Mm -hmm. life and the role that art plays in that, and then, of course, commissioning a tremendous amount of it. Mm -hmm. That's not to say I don't have commissioned works in the public realm, but it's more like a public identity or a publicness as opposed to public art or Mm -hmm. art in public space. But I do believe that there's a role to play for public art, and I'm in that conversation and tango every day of my life. So would you say, because you have a, a wonderfully commissioned public artwork on Kruger Street here um, in the CBD. Same imagery is echoed a lot of works that you would hang in a gallery space. And do you think that people respond to your work differently if it's in that kind of public setting and if it's more in that kind of gallery realm? Well, the, the, the craftsmanship which you're referring to 
in Main Street and Corner Kruger is commissioned through the then CEO of, the, of Propertuity and the founder of Propertuity, Jonathan Lehman. And it was about looking at a way of thinking about the deco history and heritage of that building and finding a way from a similar time in history to treat it aesthetically with something that, is passion, that I'm passionate about, which is dazzle, razzle-dazzle camouflage. And Jonathan had seen my work and saw the, a direct correlation and thought it would be fantastical way of mm. responding to that building. What's great is that a lot of people don't know that it's mine or that I co-designed it or that I did the painting. Mm. And therefore, there's a frivolity that happens around it. A lot of kids like to, I say kids, I suppose millennials. <laughs> Ooh. A lot of the younger generation <laughs> who are very fascist, fashion conscious in the public sense of how mm. cities produce a public identity. I mean, you'll see kids here in Maboneng constantly posing with the signage mm. and the buildings and so forth. So forth. It's like Maboneng is this stage yeah. for a hyper-urban performativity, mm. which is really interesting. And I've had friends send pictures of their kids posing in front of the craftsmanship as if it was like mm -hmm. just a playful fashion shoot. And it's quite, you know, buildings do that all over the world. And buildings are sought out as tourist attractions. Mm -hmm. So there's something novel about the, the role of art and architecture in Maboneng to reimagine the potential of spaces of urban decay, reshaping, re mm -hmm. and often you need artists to do that, uh, to help the engineer or the architect plus the residents and the developer in the mm. first place. So that is a very, it's a very publicly cognitive conversation, mm. but often it's a very distanced relationship. Yeah. So what's quite exciting is that 2018 kind of celebrates the eight years that you've collaborated with Davicrit Projects and spent a really good amount of time in the Davicrit workshop. How has then the, the medium of printmaking influenced your work? Has it something that you found very productive as a medium in terms of process? So um, I, fi I find it's uh, like, a, like a, a, a very useful rehearsal space for drawing. Not rehearsing for the print, just drawing in general. And I'm, a, I, I'm useless at drawing. I don't, it doesn't <laughs> come out easily. Like most of my prints are really process of pure pain <laughs> to arrive at the end result, which is fair because that struggle is, that's the, you know, so from being mm. a so-called conceptual artist who theoretically didn't make anything but conceptualized mm. things, built installations, made films and photographs, but at that kind of, like it wasn't about making objects and thinking of them in a retail world. It was about putting an idea forward. Mm. If I sold it, fine, but it was always about an image is a thing for something else. It's not in and of itself mm. there for consumption as, a, as an object. Nowadays, or I should say circa 2008, I became really dis dissatisfied with that way of working. Mm. It didn't make any sense to me anymore. I love taking pictures and I love making films. In fact, I make more videos today than I did when I was considered a video artist mm. filmmaker in the 90s. Um, but then it was like I was teaching it and I was eh. So, so printmaking is really, it's like going to gym to tune yourself in mm. some way. And equally, because it is a combination of reductive and generative processes for building up an image, and it has a lot of technicality, but strong associative power in the technique, like the idea of steel facing a plate. So soft copper, 
becomes hardened, um, acid etching and biting. There's a lot of language that centers around creating strength and robustness and durability, and yet actually it's also very precarious and fragile and, and, and requires multiple uh, um, repeats in order to get it right. So it's, it's a kind of like a, a mirror of life. It's a constant bloody struggle to get it right. And that's interesting because there's more mistakes than there's accuracy, and yes. the mistakes are fodder for new work. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of the rehearsal process that mm -hmm. I see it every time. And often what I found quite interesting is that we'd bring in artists into the workshop who aren't necessarily printmakers or work with imprint, and they find that through the printmaking process, it really starts to influence and help the other aspects of their practice. Have you found the same thing? Yeah, it's about you know learning to work with one's hands mm -hmm. again. So all this conceptual stuff is fine, but actually there are multiple, you know, while one is alive, <laughs> it might be interesting to, to find that next station for art making. Mm -hmm. Then in my case, it's very much about a very basic return to art school principles. Like what were we taught? What didn't I sufficiently mine when I was a student? What am I mining today, 20 plus years on, from those tutorials and things? And how is there, and, and there seems to be some sort of reciprocity mm -hmm. in printmaking and object making where the struggle with the hands and the body yeah. is kind of truer to life than other modes of artistic production. And that just feels right or has felt right for the last decade, <laughs> you know? and 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 well, you know, and I'm still interested in that. Yes. So that's and printmaking is a fundamentally tactile way of thinking about image making, and it just finds its way back into the studio as a way of thinking about sculpture, mm. as a way of thinking about 2D, 3D, and it's paper, and paper can go in so many directions, mm. and that's something I'm still just trying to learn how to do. Mm. So looking at the prints that you've made, you often make use of text and words in your works. Is this for more of an aesthetic choice or linking back to your conceptual way of thinking? Well, I often employ text in a way that requires a, a heightened reading eye, <laughs> to put it crudely, yeah. <laughs> an eye that has to do more work. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I was, what I was referring to earlier about the sensory thing is that when you feel your eyes working, mm -hmm. when you feel your eyes working the surface of something, anything, working it as in you are forensically or phenomenologically extracting value, that's when this, that's the, the heightened mm -hmm. sensory moment. So text, in, it typically has been, the text elements are drawn from language that describes perception, ways of seeing. So it's kind of logical, it's a der moment. You mm. borrow text, put it onto a picture to make a point about seeing. Yeah. Now Magritte did that yeah. so beautifully, right? Yeah. He was constantly asking the questions about what we see, what we perceive, mm. what it is, what's real, what's not. I'm not doing that per se, but it is about that idea of being cognizant of the surface of something and that there is a layer or a depth beyond that. Mm. And and I'm typically trying to play with text in a disruptive way. So it's not just text that is disrupted by being broken up mm. and fragmented, but then a vocabulary of marks that are drawn from other printmaking logics then interfere with the text on the surface or in front or behind or whatever, and then it's more layers and more, m more of a requirement to get mm. people to read. And often people couldn't be bothered. Mm. So then it just sits as kind of calligraphic 
and nonsensical, mm. which is also interesting because so much of my stuff is abstract. Yes. And that might be a kind of way of psychic sense of what art should or shouldn't be, what it can or cannot tell. And abstraction seems to be a very, very useful space mm. to work in. You don't have to overcome yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And kind of linking to the abstraction, another element that you use quite often in your prints and your work in general is the use of camouflage. Mm. Why has that been such a recurring abstract image in the work? So I think that camouflage is a, in and of itself is a, exists because of the forces that play around mm. being seen and not being seen. So take that directly back to Joburg and the tacticality of presence, absence, um, visibility, all of those kinds of things. A camouflage was born out of that function to reveal and conceal, to disrupt, to confuse. So it's a logical space of imagery and so on that is often entirely site-specific. I use camouflage in a very, a very abstracted way, mm -hmm. but it's entirely site-specific. And wars have been lost over bad camouflage. The Boers fighting the the, the British the British lost in the First World War precisely because they appeared as red <laughs> and white or whatever. Meanwhile, the, the Boers the had belt, worked yeah. out guerrilla tactics of camouflage, browns, dull colors, hidden trees, sabotage, all that kind of stuff. So their entire physical mechanism of fighting the British was mm -hmm. as a body to be camouflaged, let alone wear clothes that blended with the landscape. So in some ways, camouflage is a beautiful psychological thing that for me ticks a lot of boxes around in some ways very non-verbal states of being and of course it's highly trendy and very sexy and all those kinds of things so there's there's a lot about camouflage that informs the way through fashion that fashion has picked up on that actually comes from bloody battlefields yeah and so there's that fantastic irony between looking good as a corpse <laughs> Very now, exactly. I don't play that out so much, mm. but that is, you know, one can talk about camouflage for a long time mm. because it is so rooted in geometry, in physics, in landscape. It's pervasive. It's technology. Just scan the history of camouflage in war. The relationship between art and camouflage is intrinsic. Artists design camouflage. Nobody mm. else does that. Artists design the deception in the battlefield. There's so many ironies around camouflage as a technique for creating deception. And in some battlefields, it has worked, in others it hasn't. Mm -hmm. It is also directly linked to new technologies today. So in some ways, you open up the camouflage conversation and you're talking about something very furtive, no yes. pun intended, <laughs> in the context of something very concrete, which I suppose is some notion of survival, mm -hmm. individual or collective. And so I think camouflage is really about a big social problematic that is linked to war and linked to death and all these other things and you know it's kind of like just an endless loop of fascinating mm -hmm. stuff the more you delve into it in terms of where it's applied how it's you know one can go on <laughs> and I am <laughs> no but it's quite exciting though because you keep the more you keep exploring this concept of camouflage you start to uncover so many areas in which it exists mm. and kind of where it started and what it means conceptually practically so i think it's a very exciting area to work with and i mean a lot of your work deals with like these optic optical illusions um, and camouflage just forms a part of that 
Hmm. It's quite exciting. So I, I'm I'm fascinated by mirrors and glass curtains on buildings and what they reflect and so on. So if you think of like mainstream ma- mainstream Hollywood and how spectacular Predator was, Schwarzenegger's film, and the the Predator went f- the the alien went from being a kind of like cyborgy, metamorphosed, biological, creepy creature, lizard-likey thing, to then this like super reflective. fractal like prismatic thing so it was a mirror body so first it was its alien organic body and then it becomes this mirror body that Mm -hmm. reflects the environment around it and prismatically disrupts it and so on and if you look at where the predator was wherever that was in 1985 or whenever the film was made probably a bit later early 90s to what they try to do now to make tanks and things Mm -hmm. suddenly mimic their environs. This is entirely linked to um, biomimicry and, and stuff in the sea. And it's, just, it's so spatial. It's so much about the object. It's so much about the ice cube. Yeah. It's the ice block. In a way, I suppose, was a rehearsal for a notion of camouflage. Mm. Present, absent, long time to disappear. I saw it in one state, then it was another. You know, I think that's always been the thing. It's a, It's an inquiry into the magic of optics mm-hmm. that it's magical mm-hmm. and if you depending on how you harness it you might be able to create pleasure for you, for your viewer trying to find these exciting ways to make use of optics i think so and to explore them to their full extent of what they can be yeah and to bring them back in all the time to use them as techniques for challenging what you're making mm-hmm. because really it's always the same thing Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. If you <laughs> bypass all the business of buying for investment, but as opposed to buying for love, well, what is that mm. love? What is it? Is it? Can you explain? Oh, I love this artwork. What do you mean by you love it? Oh, actually, it's titillating something in my mind. Can you be more specific? No, I can't. Doesn't matter. The optics are yeah. working. It's that. It's just that constant play. That's mm. all that it is. How to attract someone. And I suppose in biomimicry, it's like a, a no-brainer, right? like a bird will fluff its feathers yeah. it's so sweet oh my god he's doing the same dance again and there are some fairly predictable lovers out there yeah. i suppose we're like constantly playing the same trick the same one-liner mm. but how can we take that one-liner and make it sophisticated mm. every time and it is it's seduction it's you know it's mm. that whole plan it's on its head a little bit yeah. and kind of play around yeah and it's fun i mean it's a it's a way of just making the visual even more visual mm. And I think what, what I've always really loved about your practice is the fact that there's not one medium that you're ever focused on. I mean, there's sculpture, there's installation, there's video printmaking, um, so it is very vast. And I think one of the forms that I've always felt found very interesting is your use of books as an artistic medium. Where has that interest kind of fallen in? And why have you enjoyed using it as an artistic medium? So most of the books that I make don't have words in them. That's because... I'm almost, I don't think I can read. I'm not a very good reader. (laughs) I love collecting books and I love reading bits of books, but I'm not good at finishing a book from (laughs) beginning to end. And therefore the books I tend to buy are nonfiction anyway. And there's, you know, I I feel like this is such a cliche. Uh, A book is an object, you hold it in your hands Mm. and it has a whole lot of reverberation. They're very powerful things. And I found somehow that working with, the, the book is like a brain or it's or it's the distillation in a moment of of contained narratives in my case presented often very abstractly so that the journey through the pages or the journey through the surface or the journey through the text in inverted commas 
or the image of text, all those kinds of ideas, is contained like a little movie in your hand mm -hmm. and that there's something simple and direct about it. And the, I think the books that I make are very simple and direct. Mm -hmm. They can be complex in their construction, but they are very simple as, as in terms of that um, mindfulness of seduction. Mm -hmm. It must be playful and fun and childlike in the way that a child discovers a book, which you can do with books. Mm. You can't, yeah, you can do it with sculpture, you can do it with anything, but the, a book is a universe. And that's how, when the time is right, you, you want to make little universes yeah. or little galaxies or something, or maybe just a planet. Mm. And I think that's also kind of where use of pop-up books comes in. Mm. You know, it really is this kind of your reference to like this childlike excitement, this little sculptural world that mm. you're opening up. Yeah, I mean, pop-up books, the best ones for me are really um, adventures. And they and, and I was turned on to them. I mean, who doesn't like a pop-up book, right? They like kind of, they, 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 they sort of trigger that childlikeness or, and so on in, in all of us, I think, the delightfulness in the play. But really, I got attuned to the power of a pop-up book as an, in the sense of an art object and what one tries to get an art object to do if you're physically making objects within the scale of your body or your hands is how a child will embrace a pop-up book mm -hmm. and left to their own devices will hammer it <laughs> yeah. and pull it apart and put their hand through it and do whatever they possibly can to wreck it um, unconsciously or unconsciously and that it's that it's that level of interactivity mm -hmm. is what you want from your work yeah. you want a viewer to do that with your stuff is to have that kind of level of intrigue mm -hmm. that at least a pop-up book is a metaphor for the for the what's going on in the brain of mm. someone who's highly into your stuff, and that's what I think making pop-up books is for me. Not that I make a lot of them, but but that they are about some proof that someone gives a shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you want someone to just be fully absorbed enough into it that they actually want to destroy it. <laughs> yeah, well, just yeah, exactly, just yeah. to to stay with something yeah. for a while because we're all deeply insecure as artists perhaps mm. about what measure of significance or value we offer to the world mm. and it's very studio practice is in some ways the most dangerous of practices so to loop back to the for me it's dangerous because it can be incredibly myopic and so in this world it's I recognize the studio space as equally as much a safe space as it is probably one of the most horrible spaces to contemplate on a daily basis. But this is an internal struggle. Mm. When you take this work, whatever it is, into the public domain, it has to perform. It, 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 you can choose how it performs, but it is accountable in a whole other set of ways. Equally, when you take it out of the studio into a gallery or into a museum or other modes of of communication and exhibition and so there's all of these so the publicness of existence and of artistic existence is a necessary space to stay in check or to be kept in check and for it to have value at that level and to take it or leave it when you enter the studio space and then you work at a manageable scale where the forces in here are currently cold descending air and the vastness of the space and I can't see that fucking object and I don't know yeah. where to put that thing. And so it's like it's, it's domesticated at that level, but mm. that universe is equally threatening and weird. And, uh, and I need both to feel whole as an artist. 
And I think it's so, just to kind of, to like round it up, is that through kind of working in the studio space, presenting it within the public realm, the one thing that I always, I think that you mentioned that always kind of makes your work so successful and that people really respond to is the fact that it's a whole sensory um, experience. You get that in your books when you're kind of opening it up. It's this very individual interaction with your more optical works and the works that use a lot of text. You, you, the viewer needs to respond in a certain way. They're really engaging with the work. So they do have that whole sensory interaction, which I really quite enjoy. And you can even just see it now with being in the studio, us having fun here, you have a whole interaction with it. You kind of want to touch things and you want to play around with it because your work alludes itself to that, that it's something that you want to experience and be a part of, which I think is really quite wonderful. Well, I think that like the death of curiosity is the death of art, or the yeah. death of art is the death of curiosity. So the more... I don't even know what either of those things mean. <laughs> I just know that if you can create the circumstances for one's natural curiosity mm. to be fueled, then you are subliminally doing something mm. interesting. It's an experiment. And, you know, we have that license as artists to experiment with our audiences. And so that's probably as a way of rounding up from my side, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I'm not disciplined enough to stay in one medium. I can't. I'm not capable of that right now. I have done it in the past. And for now, it's a, a tremendous amount of strategic play to calculate various outcomes that might be relevant for this show or this space or that thing. And therefore, I've got to keep the, the kind of smorgasbord filled and then select from it for whatever project is coming up next mm. and then then be strategic hopefully but that's perfect and i think just to kind of finish off i think my three words of summing up your work is definitely one being curiosity optics and play like you mentioned and i think that's something that a lot of viewers will be able to also kind of see in their works so i'll put all the links in the description below because i'd love for you guys to actually have a look at all of stephen's work and please um even better come into the gallery spaces because there really are works that you experience and that you can engage with so thank you so much steve my pleasure that was fun yeah <laughs>